Welcome to the Weird and Loathsome Podcast. I am your pseudonymous host, Brian K. DeVille. The following is a reading of The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. Enjoy. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But the very definiteness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato. Although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared, he prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for a Montiato, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontillado. A pipe? Impossible. In the middle of Carnival? I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado. I have my doubts. Amontillado. 
and I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucrece. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me Lucrece cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucrezi, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucrezi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, and putting on a mask of black silk, and drawing a reliquaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together upon the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, he said. It is further on, said I, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned toward me, and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nitre? he asked at length. Nitre, I replied. How long have you had that cough? Ugh, ugh, ugh. My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be 
ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucrece. Enough, he said. The cough's a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A draft of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us, and to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in an azure field. The foot crushes a serpent rampant, whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo? May impune lashes it. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through long walls of piled skeletons, with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough, it is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first another draught of the Medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You... Do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood? How? You are not of the Masons? Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign he said, a sign. It is this, I answered, 
producing from beneath the folds of my roquelaire a trowel. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and, descending again, arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt, there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt or recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed. I said, herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucrezia, she is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you, but I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, 
I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depths of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused and holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated, I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier I began to grope with it about the recess but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, Ha ha ha, he he, a very good joke indeed, an excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo, <laughs> over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado, but is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the palazzo, the Lady Fortunato, and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. 
Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient, I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer, I called again, Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requisat. The proceeding has been a reading of The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe, first published in 1846. This is yet another classic of Gothic horror by the great master of the art, Edgar Allan Poe. The story is rich in tension and suspense and steeped throughout in irony on nearly every level. Much of this irony is evident upon the first reading, but additional levels become apparent in subsequent readings. For instance, Montresor, the murderer and ironist, misdirects not only the unfortunate Fortunato, but the reader as well. While relishing the retelling of his revenge, Montresor revels in the pending immolation of Fortunato. Immolation, with its implication of destruction by fire, later strikes one as ironic in light of the victim's ultimate doom by immuration within the walls of the dank and moldy tomb. This foreshadowing of Fortunato's fate creates the dramatic irony of the reader's awareness of certain information not available to the characters. Even up until the placement of the final brick, Fortunato struggles to incorporate the fact of his impending death. Meanwhile, the reader is subject to ever-growing tension. This dramatic irony is paired with the situational irony created by both the author and Montresor. The victim is explicitly the lucky one by name, but is doomed to die in any event. The story is set during the Carnival, a celebration of subversion and a time for which consequences are suspended for otherwise socially unacceptable acts. But instead of a consequence-free revelry, the readers are instead offered a tale of monstrous finality and the consequences of vengeance. All along, the reader is also treated to Montresor's ongoing 
verbal irony in professing concern and filiality towards his victim the narrator repeatedly attempts to dissuade Fortunato from walking headlong into this trap. It is apparent from the perspective of a third party that this is the irony so familiar to our modern ear as reverse psychology. But the words of concern have their intended effect and lead to the horrific climax of Fortunato's entombment. This is a fantastic story in its effective evocation of mounting horror as the reality comes into view for the victim and clarifies in the mind's eye of the reader. The debauched, celebratory evening of Fortunato is brought to a close with the bells of his costume ringing out not in celebration but rather in a macabre echo of the devices built to foil an accidental live burial. This funerary note is echoed in Montresor's final ironic line in which he prays for the peaceful repose of the dead in full face of the terror imposed by this entombment. I am your host, Brian K. DeVille, and I hope you have enjoyed this weird and loathsome podcast. <laughs>